because we spend as, as people 90% of our time in buildings, that healthier building role or healthier material role is really important. Just like the ingredients list that you look at when you buy a box of crackers at the grocery store, we should know what's in our buildings and, and what, they're, what they can mean or are doing to us. Hello and welcome to CSU Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. As an environmental um, uh, geek, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a lab scientist or an environmental attorney or a park ranger, I guess. <laughs> could have been could have been anything. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health, and sustainability, and learn about their current work and their career journeys. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, Associate Vice Chancellor of the CSU Spur Campus, and I'm joined today by Ben Shepard, Director and Planning Practice Leader at Atelier 10, an environmental design consulting firm based in New York City. Ben has extensive experience with urban ecology, renewable energy, and green development. He's worked on plans including commercial, university, government, and transportation projects, and has consulted on more than 100 high-performance building projects. Ben also teaches environmental design courses at the Yale School of Architecture. Welcome, Ben. Well, thanks for having me. Hello. It's great to have you. So I just hit on some high points out of your bio, but maybe you can tell us in your own words, what is it that you do? Sure. I'm a director here in our New York office, Atelier 10. Uh, we were uh, founded in 1990 in London uh, by some progressive engineers. We opened a New York office uh, studio here in 2001 and have since opened New Haven in San Francisco. We're a group of collaborative, interdisciplinary, innovative uh, design consultants focused on delivering sustainability to the planned and built environment. And we work on a wide variety of projects, as you were saying, everything from museums to transportation hubs to large-scale master planning. Um, and, and so we get to get to play in a lot of sandboxes. Great. Okay. So let's back up and, and hit on some definitions. What you mentioned the built environment, what does that entail? Yeah, sure. We would define it as anything that's, uh, you know, a building could be commercial office, residential, institutional, uh, campus building, um, can also be, you know, train stations to airports, um, and even infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure is a key part of uh, what we don't often think about or see. So transit infrastructure, energy infrastructure, um, and there's uh, huge uh, transitions going on in all of those aspects as we see each day in the paper online, etc. Absolutely. So it's a little bit of everything. It's the the pipes and the wires that get us the energy and the water and and take away our trash, things like that. All of that's the infrastructure, right? And then there's planning for kind of blocks of, of cities. That might be a master plan, right? You mentioned master planning. So that's mm-hmm. sort of a larger scale plan of where buildings go, what types they are, mm-hmm. how, how do you connect them? Um, and then you do work at the building scale also. So really, it's it's kind mm-hmm. of all over lots of different categories, lots of different scales. That's right. Yeah. And and I think that's a key part of sustainability is uh, the reason we can work on so many uh, variety of types of projects is that sustainability really is scalable. There's a role that we can play in each type of those projects. There's always a way that we can improve them, whereas designers, uh, they could be designed or, or operate better, whether that's from an energy intensity perspective, a carbon perspective, both operational and embodied, which is the materials that go into the project. Uh, there's, there's always some way we can improve it. Uh, I think that's what keeps us interested and and keeps us busy. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and what about you specifically? So, do you work on all of those sectors and scales or do you have an area that is a specific focus? 
Yeah, I think unlike a lot of firms, we don't necessarily have like sector, uh, you only work in transportation or you only work in, say, laboratory buildings or or campuses. We, we really like to interplay because there are elements of, of both aspects of types of projects that you can learn a lot from. So we don't try to pigeonhole or bin people directly into one. Certainly we have individual expertise is in certain areas and we'd like to really share the knowledge too. the knowledge exchange piece is really strong because uh, you're learning on every project. I, I mean, you, and applying what you learn on one project to another too. And that really not only varies from project type, but location climate uh, is a huge driver too. And uh, so we're, we're constantly trying to apply the lessons learned, but also think very innovatively, creatively about what we could do. Okay, so let's take for as an example, someone comes to Atelier 10 and says, we are building a building, we need some help in making it more sustainable, we have some goals Mm -hmm. around that. What does that look like then for you? How do you get involved in that project? What do you bring to the table? Sure, sure. Yeah, and oftentimes uh, it's gotten written into the RFPs, the requests for proposals that go out these days. So oftentimes an architect or a planner or maybe a landscape architect will come to us and say, hey, we've got a great client. Um, They're looking to apply sustainability. And when I started in this business over 20 years ago, um, it was maybe a lead goal or just saying it wanted to be green or sustainable. And now we see a lot more detail to that of even here's the type of energy level of energy energy consumption we think the the project should use. Here's the water, you know, we want net zero water uh, or net zero energy uh, types of targets. Um, Here's what we think about with regards to the materials being involved. So it's gotten from kind of one line byline in a whole, you know, multi-page proposal to now very specific of what that is. Um, And that's great because that gives us a lot to talk with the the other members of the design team, the architects, certainly the engineers too, uh, about how we can help them not only win the project, but deliver a much better project. Why do you think that is that it's gotten so much more specific and detailed? And and I'm assuming also mm-hmm. that more and more projects are actually requiring that there is some sustainability bent to it. Why, why do you think that trend is moving in that direction? I think we just know a lot more now, too. I mean, whereas uh, we wouldn't have even been talking about something like embodied carbon of, of what's what's the material ingredients of what goes into a building. It, it's really shifted over time. I mean, 20 years ago, we might have talked about the healthy role of those, not off-gassing or VOCs, volatile organic compounds, into a space. We're now we're concerned with what is the, the environmental impact of that concrete or that steel, or how can we reduce that in a new building or even in a renovation, it's really continued to grow. And I think in some respects that might seem daunting, but it's also uh, a great opportunity to reduce the overall impact. And I think we also just have much better tools, uh, analysis tools, certainly, and just the thinking behind it. It's much more holistic and uh, our approach approach to things where before we might have, you know, done something for energy if, say, it was in an area where energy was very expensive on the coasts in California or New York, but that would have been kind of it. Now it's much more comprehensive of energy, resource use, water, certainly out west where you are, and, and the materiality, too. And thinking about because we spend as, as people 90% of our time in buildings, that healthier building role or healthier material role is really important. Just like the ingredients list that you look at when you buy a box of crackers at the grocery store, we should know what's in our buildings and, and what, they're, what they can mean or are doing to us. Yeah, absolutely. So you hit on a couple things in, in that answer that I want to come back to. So one is the idea of embodied carbon. 
You mm-hmm. started to describe it, but maybe you can say a little bit more about that because I think we might think of, okay, we were, we're talking about a, a building, that building uses energy, that mm-hmm. energy is generated. Somehow we know that we can calculate a carbon footprint of that energy. But what you're mm-hmm. talking about is the one-time energy that goes into the construction of the building itself. Maybe you can say a little bit more about that and why it is that people are starting to include that in their calculations. Sure, sure. Uh, a few reasons why we're starting to include it, but the importance of it is uh, really that if we're concerned about the climate crisis that we're we're in now, and we want to do the, the the most we can to avoid the negative uh, impacts that we're already starting to see globally uh, in the world, it's really more important to focus on the material use of a building being constructed than it is the operational carbon, which will take tens and 20 and 50 years uh, to really impact. So it's not to say that operational use, energy efficiency, which is, you know, from the 70s on what we were kind of all brought up in of, you know, uh, turn off the lights and uh, move to LEDs uh, for lighting, uh, light emitting diodes and all of those aspects, mechanical and architectural, that they're not important. They are, but in the near term, the materials that are going, you know, from mining out of the ground to make your building and the shipping and everything that goes with that too is a much more important part of the picture. And that shift has really only happened in the last, I would say, five or 10 years. Yeah. So, for example, what's a climate culprit when it comes to the materials that are going into a building and what are you thinking about replacing it with? Yeah, yeah. Great question. And I think that's what gets us excited as designers of, again, talking about how can it be better? How can it improve? Um, There are low carbon structural and cladding materials now uh, that we look at. Uh, The use of wood, um, CLT, for instance, cross-laminated timber is is very popular right now for certain building types. Uh, We did one of the largest on the East Coast, uh, UMass Amherst. Uh, This was opened about five or six years ago now, utilizing timber. And And it has concrete too to it, uh, but it's a lower embodied carbon concrete. So we look at putting in poslins or other types of supplementary cementious materials, they're called, uh, that have a high recycled content or are regionally sourced. And we use those within the concrete mix. And it's it's this kind of interesting win-win too, where because it's often available regionally, which has a lower carbon impact, uh, it can cost less. And uh, as supply chains have been really kind of wild over the past year or two, especially, uh, we've seen where some of the large wood CLT projects or other low carbon concrete products have come in cheaper than the conventionally sourced concrete and steel materials. So it's it's this kind of win-win on both it's better for the environment and better for the ultimate budget of the project. Yeah, thanks. That's that's helpful. I think it's helpful to sort of dive into one specific example of how the how the work you're doing is changing as we all focus more and more on these on these issues and there's so much mm-hmm. more attention on climate in particular these days than maybe when you started out. So uh, you also mentioned net zero water. So maybe you could talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. And and then I'd love to dive in a little bit more and kind of what's a day in the life for you. But for, first, let's talk a little bit about sure. water. What are you, what are you guys um, focused on in that space right now? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, maybe a few ideas about water. I mean, certainly uh, what's going on out west in our San Francisco office has, has been involved uh, greatly in, you know, projects with uh, like the Transbay Transit Terminal in, in San Francisco, uh, which has uh, purple pipe. Um, so basically uh, capturing water on the roof, reusing that within the building, and then also connecting to a future system of purple pipe or gray water reuse uh, within the downtown area. 
area. The water conversation always starts where it's as a resource the most scarce. And so we've seen that in projects out west for a while. But even it's coming up now in the northeast where, you know, the thought was always, well, we would have plenty of water here. We had a huge drought here where I'm based in New York City last summer. It was shocking. I mean, the reservoir was down and this is nothing new to, to folks out west again. But even here, and we're seeing precipitation events that are happening at a much more drastic scale. So high intensity storms, dropping a lot of rainfall in a very short amount of time that sheets off all of the pavement and impervious surfaces, uh, building roofs, for instance, and creates real issues where it overloads existing and, and probably outdated stormwater systems in cities, especially. And then we have things like combined sewer overflows. And so what we are seeing in projects is even here in the Northeast where water is you know supposed to be plentiful, um, what can you do to detain water uh, for the, the immediate during or aftermath of a storm to allow that rest of the city infrastructure and connection to catch up with the amount of water that's fallen? And then that leads to conversations then about, well, how do you use this water? What could you do with it? And it's really interesting to be in meetings where you have uh, these are oftentimes workshops or charrettes, they're called, where you are talking about, well, hey, we have this large roof, we can capture this quantity, this amount of gallons per water on average uh, throughout the year, or looking at it monthly, daily, even hourly, depending on the data we can get, and saying then, okay, well, what can we use that water for? We need this size of cistern. We could put that towards cooling towers, which help reject heat and then generate uh, cooling within the building. They are extremely thirsty. That can usually take all of the water that's even possible to be captured. Um, we can work with the landscape architecture team to use that non-potable water for irrigation. There's a really interesting interplay when you see like the landscape architect arguing politely with the mechanical engineer, the plumbing engineer about, hey, I want that water. No, I want that water. And this, again, was a resource that otherwise just would have fallen on the roof or on the pavement and just gone down the drain. So I think we're always looking for those kind of nice synergies of, of where there's a good interplay and, and not only a resource savings, but then a, a, a cost savings. So let's talk a little bit about the, a day in the life for you. So we've talked on some about some of the technical things you're working on. What does the, how does that actually play out when you hit the office every morning? Yeah, yeah, great question. I mean, it is a today's probably a great example. You know, an earlier meeting on a museum project in Washington D.C. There was uh, a call on a college master plan. So uh, again, a real variety. I, I think it keeps us on our toes. Again, sustainability being truly scalable. And it's it's a lot of kind of talking through the issues, figuring out, you know, where, for instance, this museum project, I mean, they're having issues with conditioning systems and flooding even. And you imagine as, as a museum conservator, that's the worst thing that can happen. Your your collection could get damaged. So it's it's kind of, of not only how do we save energy and, and conserve resources in the long term, but how do we help your current problems and, and situation that you're in? And increasingly, that's thinking about what's happening today, i.e. the flooding or those issues that are occurring with a frequency, and also tomorrow, what's the climate going to be like in 5, 10, 20 years? And what does that mean? Do you need more shading on your building? Do we need to think about a ground source heat pump geo-exchange system as your current mechanical system gets gets older and is needed to be replaced? So uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, we don't treat our buildings very well. We <laughs> just expect them to you know, 
keep going forever. And for the most part, they do. When they don't, it's big news. And, you know, if we treated our cars the same way, if, you know, we're not all in electric hybrid vehicles yet, the good old combustion engine, if we didn't go in for the oil change and the tune-ups and all that stuff, our car would no longer be running or be running very well. Unfortunately, in the built environment, we don't do a very good job of, of kind of operations and maintenance or keeping things running running well. Um, those that do are very good at it and see the benefits to that. Uh, a lot of the healthcare or campus clients we work with with, um, are good at that because they have you know a number of buildings to take care of and at the same time they see the value over time of that investment but uh, too often we just kind of forget and expect our buildings just to be you know continue on and not have to do anything about it Yes, we take it for granted. So um, let's take a, an example there as well. So you're having a, a call with a potential client or an existing client who's got a, a problem to solve. Who do you draw on from within Atelier 10 or elsewhere to help solve that problem? I'm assuming you've got some folks who do specific kinds of analysis who are engineers or um, have, have certain areas of expertise. How do you pull that all those pieces together? Yeah, yeah. I, again, it's a team approach. Um, we have a great staff who uh, generally have an architecture engineering background or maybe environmental policy. More of those programs have grown in the past 10 to 20 years, which is fantastic for us to be able to draw on. I, I think, you know, oftentimes we're trying to fit the right people to the team. So it's not just one person uh, lone rangering it on, on the project all by themselves. But, you know, there's a, a project manager, there's a project principal, there's some support staff depending on which scopes of work we're doing. Um, so it really kind of lends a sense of ownership, but also of, of team of like uh, problem solvers. Okay. Well, so I'm going to ask you a question that you may not be able to answer because it's like asking people about their favorite kid, but do you have a favorite project, either an existing one <laughs> or one that you've worked on in the Ooh. past? I mean, there's there's lots of great stories from it all. Um, yeah, favorite project. It, is, it would be like a favorite kid. I mean, right now, one of my favorites is, um, and, and I think if people don't already know about it, definitely look it up. You'll hear more about it. Uh, I think here, especially shortly, it's in Pittsburgh, the Mill 19 at Hazelwood Green. It's a redevelopment of a historic uh, turn-of-the-century steel mill. And so it's an old uh, brownfield site. It was one of the last surviving structures of, you know, Pittsburgh's industrial age. And we we're on a great team. Um, MSR architects out of uh, Minneapolis uh, originally brought us in. 10 by 10 landscape architects were also involved in the project. And it's for a, a group called RADC. And they specialize in the redevelopment of these um, old brownfield sites within Pittsburgh to help grow the economy. And um, I'm going to stop you there and ask you about what is a brownfield before you great. describe more of the project. So a brownfield is a... a uh, previously industrial site, uh, likely contaminated, um, and it limited, oftentimes limited in what you can build on it. And rather than just having it uh, stay empty forever or just being uh, maybe an open space, this is intended to be uh, this project, Mill 19 Almano, and an economic uh, incubator space. So they have Carnegie Mellon's robotics lab. They have some other uh, tech companies taking space within this building inside a building almost. Uh, we kept a shell uh, of the old steel mill, rehabbed it, and then it now features the largest sloped photovoltaic PV roof in the United States. And, and so it's this interesting mix of old and new and, and servicing kind of Pittsburgh's part of their amazing turn in their economy of moving from, you know, 
know, industrial uh, hellscape when you couldn't even breathe the air or, or, or see through the smog of all of the, the mills there to uh, what is uh, a new job uh, economic creator and has some great open space, has a great landscape design that uh, captures water like we were talking about before uh, for reuse, uh, both for the building mechanical systems as well as in uh, some stormwater features. And I think it's, it's just a really great example of adaptive reuse, again, of, of taking something old and, and making it new again. Yeah, I love those stories of restoration or adaptive reuse, the term you used where you take a building and renovate it for a different use than what it originally had, right? It's not just a renovation or restoration, it's ad- adapting it to, to have a different function. I love those stories and it, it um, is so inspirational to see how it it can have an impact at the city scale because Pittsburgh is now widely acknowledged as very innovative and a beautiful city. And, um, and I always enjoy visiting myself. So, um, that's a great example. What, what might people find surprising about your day or some of the projects you're working on? And I think, well, someone who's thinking about green building and sustainability, what might not fit into that mental image they're conjuring up? I would bet that most people think, oh, it's all about some technological solution or some new fancy system or something like that. I, I think it really gets down to the first principles of, you know, just what is good design or what are the uh, fundamental principles of physics, <laughs> for instance, and conservation of matter and energy. Um, but I think it's really about the people, too. It's about, yeah, you know, having a good uh, argument or good case to be made for why this building is going to be, you know, different for the people in it, whether that's, you know, talking about a commercial office building to a developer who you might not expect to be the most innovative type of group, but if they hear, wow, this is going to really speed us to market and this is going to outcompete all of you know, who they're up against for potential tenants. Um, same for residential. I mean, the, the people, if you can make it about you know better indoor air quality and I mean, geez, with COVID, if that taught us anything, um, I would hope that it's, we need to create really good interiors spaces that are well ventilated and healthier. And I think those are the projects too, that are going to outcompete kind of the old, old guard that's out there still too. And we've seen this on uh, university campuses, college campuses for a long time where, uh, you know, there's a lot of movement towards building, you know, for, for the new STEM program or uh, whatever the hot research is at the moment. But ultimately a lot of those projects are about daylight. Yes. They're about conserving energy and being more efficient, uh, but they're about creating just great spaces. And I think when you walk in those spaces, you can, you can almost tell it intuitively too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I, I have turned the light on in my office maybe once, um, since we moved in in part because we really focused on that daylight piece and it's, it does, obviously it helps for energy conservation, but it's also just a nicer place to be. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how teaching plays into the work you're doing and, and how you fit it into what seems like an already busy schedule. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, luckily, the, as an adjunct, uh, you can do one class a week in the evenings, uh, which certainly helps. And and caffeine is is a great uh, helper helper as well. I, I think there's a few reasons to do it. One is, of course, giving back and you know finding the next generation too, and also you know staff. We have staff that we have hired that we have taught um, before, you know, those that ask great questions and showed up and, um, you know, we're, we're very interested in the subject matter. 
I think to that point too, teaching really helps give you a mastery in the material you're, you're talking about because you will be called out on the mat. You will be asked questions that you hadn't thought about before. And you really need to like think about all aspects of the subject you're teaching. So not to say that you can't ever say, Hey, I'll get back to you on that. That's always possible too, but it really just helps you get comfortable with what you're doing. That's great. And what are you most inspired by when you're teaching? I'm I'm guessing having an opportunity to interact with people who are younger and and what are the questions they're asking and and or how are they engaging with you that is is giving you hope? Yeah, yeah. I I think it's just a whole new baseline. I mean, they don't question anymore that you know, that there is a climate crisis or that we do need to recycle or we do need to build more efficiently. Their their biggest questions or biggest gripes, rightfully so, are like, why aren't we doing this already? Like, why aren't we doing more of it? Why why isn't this happening already? And so I think, you know, the the timeline, right? When you're when you're young, every nothing's happening as quick as you want it. It's everybody's holding you back and all of that energy. So I mean, I think when I'm teaching, I'm, I'm getting a lot of the energy that they're giving off too. of, of, you know, how do we, how do we do more? How do we do better, faster, quicker? Yep. It's, uh, there is a lack of patience that is completely understandable and shared yes. by a lot of us who are a little bit older as well. Just understanding the urgency of all the things that we're, that we're doing. So um, let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you are. Maybe we can start with what what was it you wanted to be when you grew up? <laughs> what was that? Yeah, I think, I, I, again, and looking back, it kind of all starts to make sense. But at the time, I was just as grasping for straws as anyone, I think. Um, I was very interested in the environment uh, from a young age. I think it was a part of growing up at summer camp, first as a camper and later as a counselor there. Um, and, and where, where was like, that, Ben? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, this was where Midwest. Suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio, um, and and so I, I think at a time I probably would have been very happy just being a, uh, out of camp, you know, for the rest of my life uh, outside and canoeing and doing all of that fun stuff. I, I think too, growing up in the Midwest, seeing kind of the the sprawl of the of the burbs at the time too. I mean, a lot of quality farmland was being chewed up for just subdivision after subdivision. So that uh, led me to an interest in planning at first. Um, and then I worked a uh, internship at a local planning agency and realized that, well, they weren't really planning very well. They were just kind of regulating. And I wanted to do something that was more innovative than that. And uh, my my lesson there that I, I would pass along is it's great to do internships before you go to, you know, two or three or more years of schooling, uh, you know, in that profession because it gives you a chance to really kind of test it out first and see, is, is this where I see myself? Is this what I want to be doing? So I kind of took a U-turn and at the time I was doing some research and I, I found a, a American Farmland Trust and Rocky Mountain Institute. And uh, I was really interested in uh, NGOs at the time, non-governmental organizations, nonprofits on the environmental side and uh, worked an internship at, at RMI, Rocky Mountain Institute, and loved it. And from there uh, made it a full-time job worked with the likes of Bill Browning and Amy Lovins. And this was 2000. LEED was just out on the street. So the U.S. Green Building Council's leadership in energy environmental design, benchmarking, green housekeeping, seal of approval. And uh, yeah, green building was, was um, we were out there being champions of it, of saying, again, you could, you could design things better. So that internship that you mentioned that really sort of pointed you in a slightly different direction, that was after college, after university, is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. After after uh, college, I mean, I, I went to a great school. Uh, again, as an environmental uh, geek, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a lab scientist or an environmental attorney or a park ranger. I guess <laughs> could have been could have been anything. But uh, up at uh, a, a small school, Northern College, uh, up in northern Wisconsin, the Northwoods, beautiful spot, just on Lake Superior. The coldest winters I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, but I can imagine. Um, yeah, <laughs> it it brings you together and uh, great great friends from my time there, and uh, I'm lucky enough to stay involved with the college now as a, a member of the board of trustees there, and continue to give back and uh, stay connected uh, to my my second home up there. Great. So so you graduated, um, you moved to slightly warmer climates, and <laughs> um, and and tried out this internship, and and it pointed you in a different direction. What were some of the things that really struck your interest and helped you to make that turn and maybe some of the people that were part of that transformation for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, definitely at, at RMI, I mean, um, we made the, a, a set of case studies on green developments from across the world. And key to that was a three-week trip across Europe looking at European green buildings. So, uh, you know, Europe was ahead of us yeah low energy natural ventilation in the uk and germany in the netherlands um going to you know some of the the key buildings there and then getting to write about them and talk to the actually the the architects and engineers that worked on the projects uh too so that was like a great indoctrination for me yeah so i i do think that it is so important to be able to see people who are doing things in the way that maybe might be inspirational, right? It's not all, man, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. When you have a chance to see someone who, or a group of people or a whole country, depending, um, who are really being um, proactive and and solving the problem, it it can really help keep you motivated. Definitely. And and I think it's, you know, everybody uh, that I've ever come across in this field is very giving of their time and wants to share. I mean, warts and all, you know, the wins, the successes, but also, hey, here's what we would do differently now if we could. And um, that's really important because that enables each project to kind of step upon each other. And and so I think a lot of times we're all looking for what what's the big, the big thing that's going to transition the entire energy system. And, you know, what's the, you know, it, it's not, it, it's, it's a lot of projects building on the backs of others, in my opinion, that that do a lot of good in the end. So it's the collaborative nature of it. I, I always come back to. Yeah, it's great. It's a mission oriented, right? So everyone mm-hmm. really wants to make a difference in the built environment, not only on the one building that they they happen to be working on at that moment. And totally. We don't and, need. And to I make want everybody. The... You know, I want my competitors to succeed too, yeah. because that makes it that much easier for everyone else, and to get that much further. So, right. Um, we we all need to be. Uh, un- unfortunately, in some ways, this this climate crisis is kind of a growth industry, and ESG and all of the components of it continues to create a lot of work for folks like us in the profession. Um, but it just means there's a lot more we got to do. Yeah. And well, and it's it, it, one of the things I think about is not only that we are in a climate crisis, but also how much building is happening with people yeah. moving to cities and population growth and change around, demographic change around the world, that so much of the building stock that will exist by 2050, by the time we hit our 10 billion-ish um, population number, hasn't been built yet. So that can be kind of scary on the one hand. And on the other hand, if we build it better, if we build it closer to net zero, if we think about embodied carbon, if we think about healthy materials, it's an opportunity to have a a really large percentage of the buildings that we have by 2050 be 
high performance, I think is a word that you use, and to be healthier for people. So is there anything else about sort of how you got where you are that that um, we should dive in a little bit more on? Um, any mentors or moments of inspiration that, that you think might be helpful for our listeners to sort of understand why it is you ended up where you are? Yeah, I mean, it, it, how I ended up, I guess, closing the circle to Atelier 10 was um, through Yale School of Forestry and, and Environmental Studies. I'm still not sold on the new name, so come come get me if you want. Uh, but uh, I was really interested through my time at RMI, uh, led me to Professor Steve Kellert, who passed away a number of years ago now, but his research on biophilia. And again, I think the people side of thinking about, you know, how we connect to nature. And like you were saying earlier, something as simple as just daylight in, in your office space. That leads to better health outcomes. If you're a patient in the hospital, that uh, makes you happier as, an, uh, as a staff working in an office building or wherever you're at. I, all of those things, we have an innate human uh, connection to the natural world, even in as urbanized as we are. And something as simple as taking a 10 minute walk out in a city park doesn't have to be Central Park, could be, you know, around the corner and to see a few trees or to to see the sunset can reduce stress levels, blood pressure, really help help you out and put things in context, I think. And so I was really interested in how does design uh, apply with that concept of biophilia. And uh, E.O. Wilson had done great work on that too, wrote the book. And and so I, I got to FES uh, at Yale and was really there. And uh, Atelier 10 was starting work on Kroon Hall, which is a net zero carbon building uh, that was done uh, after I was a student there, but connected to that project through Steve and got to meet some of the great leaders here at the time, Tony 10, who are still with the firm in various locations and uh, have been here ever since I graduated in 2006. Oh, that's great. That's um, that's quite some time to be in one place. It tells me that that the you've had an opportunity to grow as a professional within the organization. I just have a couple last questions for you. One is where can people find out more information either about you or about Atelier 10 or both? Uh, Atelier10.com, and I'll, I'll spell it out because it's not maybe a normal <laughs> word. Yeah, what, what does it mean? Yeah, well, you can spell it, yeah. but then also define it for us. Yes. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, it, it is a French word for a design studio. Uh, really. And there was already an Atelier One, who is a fantastic structural uh, engineering firm. So 10 was the next number in, in binary. And to like, also, I think, you know, pushing the envelope of, you know, uh, 10 and beyond was the reason for the name there. But it's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-T-E-N.com. Is the number 10, right? Yes. Yeah. Spelled out. Uh, T-E-N. T-E-N. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Yep. That's a good clarification. So um, last question for you. It's our spur of the moment question. Um, do you cook? And if so, do you have a specialty? Mm. Ooh, um, cooking, probably a uh, specialty, probably like pasta. Um, I think, you know, pizza too. I, I live in New York City, so I'm think I'm contractually obligated to say like pizza is like, you know, it's it's a little tougher when you're in New York apartments and you don't have a lot of outdoor space for like a pizza oven. But I just saw there's an all electric pizza oven now that Uni has put out. I'm dying to try it. So nice. if anybody has any reviews of that, yeah, it gets up to like 850 degrees in 20 minutes somehow. It's all electric. I don't know if you need like a uh, way bigger outlet. <laughs> well, <laughs> or if I would, it I would doesn't down, heat up your apartment, I guess, is that's part of it. It doesn't make your apartment really hot. I mean, that. Yeah. That, yeah. We, we, uh, we don't tend to use our oven much in the summer. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yep. 
That's great. Well, Ben Shepard, thank you so much for your time today. We've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for being a guest on Spur of the Moment. And um, we will link to the uh, your website in the show notes. And um, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me. You bet. The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well. <laughs>